0: Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. It is good to be with you. I want to speak to you tonight about really kind of, I want to start with how blessed we are. Uh, We are blessed as a people, blessed as a nation. And in many ways, we don't even recognize how blessed we are. Benjamin Rush, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, out of the 250 or so founding fathers, John Adams said that Benjamin Rush was third most notable. He said you got George Washington, you got Ben Franklin, then you got Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush, strong evangelical Christian. He started the first abolition society in America. He started the first Bible society in America. He started the Sunday school movement in America. Just amazing what he did. And he is a Christian, and we own 160,000 original items from american history including a lot of the founding father's writings we have his prayer journal and as a good christian he was trying to thank god for all the blessings he's enjoyed and i was reading his journal and it was really good yeah i mean he's really thanking god for even small things and i came to one where he says i thank god for all the times i have not fallen downstairs (laughs) run that by me again I'll just point out, I ran up the stairs, I didn't fall, you didn't notice that. If I'd fallen, you would have noticed that. Yeah. That would not have been a blessing. Yeah. The blessing was, I came up the stairs and didn't fall, and I started thinking about it. You know, so many things, we don't notice it doesn't happen right. to us, and that's the blessing. Yeah. I mean, we we don't we go to the store, we didn't have a wreck, we didn't notice that. If we had a wreck, we noticed notice that. That's not the blessing. The blessing is all the stuff that didn't happen that we don't even think about. Right. And as it turns out, some of the greatest blessings we have in life are things we don't even we're not aware of. I mean, our health until something happens, or our family until something happens, or our job until something happens. We t- take it for granted. That's where we are in America. In America, we are blessed with a nation that has stability unlike any other nation in the world. There's 193 nations in the world at the UN this year. And when you look at any of those nations, over the course of history, we've had thousands of nations. We have 5800 years of recorded history, thousands of nations And over that period of time, you say, okay, what's the average length of a Constitution for any nation? And the average length of a Constitution for any nation of the world over 5,800 years is 17 years. That's how long a Constitution lasts on average. Now, I'll point out that last September the 17th was Constitution Day in America, the birthday of our Constitution. We celebrated 234 years at that point in time. We don't think about how different we are from everybody. We have stability everybody else dreams about. I mean, we look at Ukraine and say, oh, man, what's happening to Ukraine? I can't believe that Ukraine has those kind of wars every 30 to 40 years. As a matter of fact, history tells you over 5,800 years that the average nation averages a violent revolution every generation and a new constitution every 17 years. We haven't had that. We're blessed, and we don't even know it. We just kind of take it for granted. You know, the same thing happens when you look not only at our our, our longevity, but even our creativity. See, America represents 4% of the world's population. But when you look at creativity, and we measure that a lot of ways. You can measure creativity with copyright, with patent protection, with international things. When you look at creativity, all the discoveries made in the world, our 4%, which should produce 4% of the inventions, our 4% has made more than the other 96% combined. We have more medical technology, more cures, more discoveries, more scientific stuff, more entertainment stuff, more everything than the other 96% of the world combined. And then when you take even something as simple as as prosperity, we have 4% of the world's population. On average, every year, we produce 24 to 25% of the world's gross domestic product. Now, to kind of put that in perspective, when you look at where we are... Um, we have a census required by the Constitution every 10 years. We had one in 2020, and in 2021, the results came back. They reported the results. And according to Census Bureau results, what you find is if you live in poverty in America, and we don't want anybody living in poverty in America or elsewhere, but if you live in poverty in America, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe if you're in poverty in America. Now, let me kind of put that in perspective. The World Bank is what establishes the global standard for poverty. According to the World Bank, if you live on $2 a day or less, you live in poverty. That's $730 a year. Yet here in America, we have states like Hawaii, like Mississippi, others that say, Hey, unless you're making more than $61,000 a year, you shouldn't come off government welfare. Because that's what you're going to get with services. $61,000 versus seven hundred and thirty. dollars See, we think of poverty in a way nobody else does. We don't understand Every nation in the world is lining up at our border to get in because if they can just live in poverty in America, they have elevated their lifestyle beyond their wildest dreams. Yeah. And that's just living in poverty in America. So we've been blessed in ways that we sometimes don't understand, but other nations do. It's interesting. This goes all the way back to 1831 when a Frenchman named Alexis Tocqueville came to America. He wrote the book Democracy in America. And in that, he came up with the term that's called American exceptionalism. He said, the conditions of the American is quite exceptional and may be believed that no other democratic people will ever be placed in a similar position. So since, and by the way, this isn't cocky arrogance. This is, look at us, we're exceptional. This is, we are the exception, we're not the rule. When it comes to what the rest of the world does, we're the exception, not the rule. So how is it that we're different from every other nation? Because every nation has access to the same set of ideas. All this stuff has been written down for thousands of years, Where did we come up with those ideas? Who's responsible for it? And if you say, all right, who is responsible? Who are the leaders responsible for what we enjoy today? Obviously, we would look back to those who wrote the documents. You you got the George Washingtons and the John Hancocks and you got the John Adams and all these guys, and that's great. And these guys had a lot to do with it. However, I find it very interesting that in 1816, 42 years after the American War for Independence, in 1816, John Adams is an old man. And he gets a letter from a young man named Hezekiah Niles. Hezekiah Niles writes him and says, Hey, I'm writing a history book on the American Revolution. It came out in 1822. It's called Principles and Acts of the American Revolution. So I'm writing this history book. And he was essentially a millennial of that generation. He was the younger generation. He hadn't gone through the war. He, he hadn't seen anything about it. He's, he's a younger guy. He sure enjoyed what America's become, but he wasn't there for it. He says, I'm writing this book on the American War for Independence, and you were there. You were a key player. You're involved in everything. You have to do the documents. He said, so I'm asking you, what we enjoy today, these things that we enjoy, where did those ideas come from? Who do you credit with with the ideas that shaped America, made her unique? John Adams says, well, if you're asking me for who gave us the ideas that we put into policy that made the difference, he said, I'd start right up top with the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And then I'd have the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. Oh, don't forget the Reverend George Whitfield. And, and then don't forget the Reverend Charles Chauncey. He starts going through and listening to all these preachers. Now, we might today know something about Whitfield, but the chances that we know anything about Cooper or Mayhew or Chauncey, slim to none. And this is who John Adams is talking about as being the source of ideas. See, today we don't talk about preachers whether they're white or whether they're black. I mean, who in the world is Richard Allen or Absalom Jones? Who's John Moran or Lemuel Haynes? Or who's Harry Hoosier? I just keep going. By the way, do you recognize the word Hoosier? Is there a Hoosier state? How many people in Indiana know that they were named after black evangelist? Probably very few. Harry Hoosier is part of the Second Great Awakening. His impact in shaping that state... He's named for that. Now, you would think that a guy who has a state named after him might get a place in history books somewhere. Yeah. We don't. And by the way, do you know why we didn't teach critical race three, 30 years ago? Because we knew our history better then. Yeah. See, we knew that it was in 1902 that we took black history heroes out of the textbooks. Thank you, Woodrow Wilson. And when that happened, we no longer know history. That's why when you celebrate Black History Month mm-hmm. now, it's mostly 20th century heroes. It's mostly people like MLK and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X, et cetera. We used to know that way back. Did you know that America elected black folks to office in 1641? And then I think Russia elected their first black person to office in 1987. I think it was the 1960s for England. We're hundreds of years ahead. And then you start looking at the patriots in the American War for Independence, and oh my gosh! Do you want to talk about James Armistead or Wentworth Cheswell, or you want to talk about Prince Esterbrook or Peter Salem or, or Prince Whipple or? I just go through all... And these aren't just participants in the American Revolution. They're heroes in the American Revolution. I mean, genuine heroes. Uh, Battle of Yorktown. I mean, Lafayette says we wouldn't have won Yorktown if it hadn't been for the work of black patriot James Armistead because he's the guy who helped us be able to trap Cornwallis there. So the guys there point to all these heroes, and we don't know them today. And let me also point out that back in that day, if you had a picture painted of you, they didn't have cameras back then, clearly. If you had a picture painted of you, it cost a lot of money. You had to be really famous to have a picture painted of you. That's why we don't have pictures of most of the people back then. We have pictures of the really important ones. Do you know how many pictures there are of black patriots from the American Revolution? It's because they were heroes. And by the way, let's just talk about soldiers for a minute, because the American War for Independence is a total volunteer army. Nobody was in the army unless they served. We didn't have a draft. The average black soldier, on average, served nine times longer than the average white soldier. On average, the average black soldier re-enlisted nine times longer and nine times more often than the white soldiers did. We think the American founding was a bunch of white guys. George Washington had 76 generals. 28 of those generals came from foreign nations and foreign locations. We were a melting pot. We were black and white, Christian and Jew. We were Hispanic. You just name it. We don't teach that anymore. And because we don't, now we can go back and say America's always been really bad. No, no, no. I keep going through a lot of other heroes, but you get the idea. So, you take what we don't know about our own history, and why would John Adams point to a bunch of preachers and say, these are the guys responsible? You know, it's interesting to me that Adams did this, and historians have now documented that if you look at the Declaration of Independence, every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. So if you want a homework assignment, go home and read the Declaration of Independence like it's a list of sermon topics. Because that's what it was. See, as Adam said, these are the guys, it was these preachers that helped us understand and, and think about this. And man, look at what the result has been. We had a, what's called a biblical worldview in so many areas. Now, John Adams also talked about the fact, he said, our pulpits have thundered. And when you look at the old sermons from back then, he's right. We own thousands of these old sermons, and they're just amazing sermons. They address what I would call biblical relevancy. And biblical relevancy, by the way, is something that Jesus talked about as well. Uh, If you look at the Great Commission, I think we all have heard the Great Commission, know something about it in Matthew twenty-eight, and you also have Luke or Mark sixteen. But in Matthew twenty-eight, Jesus says, "All power is given." All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He says, Therefore, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, this is the Great Commission, but since about 1947, we've reinterpreted the Great Commission because of our own experiences. Let me see if I can explain this. The separation church and state that we hear so much about today, especially from secular people telling us what we can and can't do, and especially with lawsuits against Christians and faith. I've been involved in in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court, involved in one this year, and they've all dealt with expressions of religious faith, traditional religious faith in public that that gets challenged. So in these things, the courts say, oh, separation church and state. It's interesting. That came from something back in 1580s, um, back in England, where the Reverend John Hooker says there's going to be a separation of church and commonwealth because the king had taken over the church and was telling the church what its doctrines would be and what they could and couldn't do. Matter of fact, Pastor John Greenwood, who is the pastor of the pilgrims, pastor of the pilgrims, before they came to America, Pastor John Greenwood made the comment, Queen Elizabeth was reigning, he made the comment, he says, Jesus Christ is head of the church. And Queen Elizabeth said, how dare you say that? I'm the head of the church. She had him executed for saying that Jesus was the head of the church. That's one of the things that drove the pilgrims to America was the state had taken over the church and determined doctrines. We couldn't even say what the Bible said. So when Jefferson used that separation church and, fra- se- uh, separation church and state phrase in a letter he wrote January the 1st, 1802 in response to a letter written him by the Danbury Baptists of Connecticut on, on November the 7th, 1801... The Danbury Baptist said we are really concerned that government might shut down our religious expression, our religious beliefs. And Jefferson said won't happen. There's a wall of separation between church and state. The government will not stop public religious activities. Do you know that when the court used the phrase separation church and state after that... They would print Jefferson's full letter or long portions of it in court case, like United States versus Reynolds, 1978 Supreme Court case, uh, 1878 Supreme Court case. They had Jefferson's entire they had it's only a 233-word long letter, by the way, only three paragraphs. That's not long. So they took that and put it in there and they said, as a result of separation of church and state, we can't stop religious activities in public. We're going to protect religious activities. That's the way it was until 1947 when the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Everson v. Board of Education said, oh, there's a wall of separation between church and state. They took eight words out of Jefferson's letter. They did not reprint his letter. They didn't even put it in a footnote. And three paragraphs is easy to put in a footnote. So they took his eight-word phrase and says, we can't allow religious activities in public. And then they said, oh, no more prayer in schools, no more Bible in schools, no more Ten Commandments. They went through all the cases they went through in the 60s and 70s, and as a consequence, We think that there's a separation church and state, and we think that it means that the church can't get involved in civil affairs. That was never it. It was to keep the government from stopping us, not us from getting involved with the government. It was a one-directional wall. Jefferson also called it a serpentine fence at one time. He said it weaves and goes back and forth, and it's just a fence. It's not a wall. It's a fence. So, going back to it, what's happened since about 1947, we've taken the Great Commission and we've made it really into an evangelism mandate. We've got to get people saved, and we do. We're told to do that. We know all the way back in Proverbs 10:28 that he that winneth souls is wise. It's really important to get people saved. But that was not the Great Commission. Look at the words of the Great Commission. He said, you teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He taught a whole lot more than just getting saved whole lot more than what we would call the sinner's prayer, and I'm not demeaning that at all. Understand, I'm trying to broaden the scope. What he taught was discipleship. He said, you go make disciples. You teach them everything I've taught you, which includes what he taught in Matthew 20, what we call the minimum wage. He has, do you know how many parables of Jesus deal with economics? Straight out economics. Do you know in Matthew 19, he deals with no-fault divorce. Do you know that in John 8, the U.S. Supreme Court and the Federal Code annotated point to the fact that Jesus and John 8 dealt with criminal justice issues and that's the reason we get to confront our accusers in the, in the Sixth Amendment. The Bible? Really? Jesus did all that? See, this is making the disciples, teaching people how to think the right way. We haven't done that. Do you know that right now today, the U.S. Congress, 91% of the members of Congress profess to be Christians. Tell me how the fruit looks at this point in time. Jesus said, you know a tree by its fruits. we got a whole lot of converts who aren't thinking biblically. They're not disciples. They don't even know what he said in most areas. They probably haven't even read the book. So this is biblical relevancy. When John Adams talks about that, what, what's he talking about? That, let me take you into these sermons. This is a sermon preached in 1755 by the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. It's one of those guys John Adams specifically singled out. Now I will point out, the sermon out of Revelation 15, I'll point out that This is an unusual topic for a sermon. I can safely say I've never in my life heard a sermon on earthquakes. But it's not because the Bible doesn't deal with them. But see, their belief back then was, we want to show you the Bible applies to every aspect of life. We don't have earthquakes in Boston, but we had a big one. So let's see what the Bible says about earthquakes. Now this is interesting to me for several reasons, because I was thinking, I'm an ordained minister, I've been on lots of church staffs, and it's my belief that every Christian should read through the Bible from cover to cover at least once a year. We're told in Matthew 4, Jesus says, Man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're pretty good at making sure that we live with with bread or food or whatever. We're not as good about making sure the Spirit lives. As a matter of fact, the American Bible Society came out with their State of the Bible report just a couple of weeks ago. It's looking at Bible reading in America. And they report that from last year to this year, we've had a drop of 28 million Americans who don't read the Bible anymore. So we've gone down in Bible reading. And by the way, do you know how they define a Bible reader in America? They say that if you read the Bible outside of church four times a year, you're a Bible reader. If I only ate a meal four times a year, I would be dead long ago. Well, that's a problem spiritually. If you only eat a meal four times a year, you're going to be pretty dead spiritually. And so we need to feed ourselves spiritually. So I I, I think every Christian should read the Bible just on a regular basis, read it daily. And so as thinking about that, okay, if I had to do a sermon on earthquakes, if I'm back then and have to do a sermon on earthquakes, there's an earthquake under King Uzziah, there's an earthquake in Amos, there's an earthquake when Jesus is crucified, an earthquake when He's resurrected. Okay, I got this. I can do a good 20, 30-minute sermon on earthquakes. Well, good for me. Notice that's a five-week sermon on earthquakes. Don't come anywhere close. I actually went online and looked it up. There are dozens of Bible verses on earthquakes. I had never noticed them. I I, I didn't look for that. See, they look for very practical things. So it didn't matter whether there's fires or floods or earthquakes, anything natural disaster. If it's in the news, the Bible covers it. They also had sermons like this one. This is a sermon on comets. Notice at the bottom, two sermons occasioned by the late blazing star. There was so much in the Bible in astronomy. God talks about Pleiades and Orion-specific constellations. So we have sermons on lunar eclipses and solar eclipses, discovery of new planets. Astronomy stuff was a big topic because it's big in the Bible. And then this is a uh, a sermon on the infirmities and comforts of old age. Probably not a super popular topic. (laughs) But it is a really practical topic because everybody's got to deal with it. You're going to be growing old, and you're going to deal with people who are growing old. So what do you do with aging? we got lots of sermons on aging. Uh, here's a sermon on religion and patriotism, the constituents of a good soldier. Bible has so much to say about military. That was a, a sermon uh, from here in Virginia. It was a deployment sermon out of Hanover County. And it's interesting, when you look in the Bible military, even John the Baptist, when he was baptizing had specific instructions for officers and for soldiers and so much there. So military sermons were, were common. That was a regular part of, of what we taught because that's a regular part of the Bible. In the same way, here's a sermon on the relation of the medical profession to the ministry. 1854, a, a sermon in Boston, priest in West Church. Healthcare, Really? Do you know, when God gave His code to Israel in the Bible... On Mount Sinai, not only did He give the Ten Commandments, He gave a total of 613 laws in that code. And they dealt with everything you can think of including health care. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 15:26, God says, if you will take my stuff on health care, and if you will do what I told you, He says, quote, I will put on you none of the diseases that I put on the Egyptians. You won't have the same health problems everybody else does if you'll do my health code. So we had sermons on health care from back in the day. Here's a sermon on the character and tendency of the property tax adapted to a permanent system of taxation. Are you kidding me? Reverend Glover? Property tax? Bible, you know the Bible has a whole lot to say about economics in addition to all the economic teachings of Jesus. The Bible talks about the estate tax, it talks about the inheritance tax, it talks about what we call the capital gains tax, it talks about the minimum wage, it talks about progressive taxes, it talks about capitation taxes. The Bible is full of taxation information. As a matter of fact you may recall Jesus, Peter even had a conversation one time where Jesus stopped Peter and said, Peter who pays the taxes in the country? Is it the sons or is it the foreigners? And Peter kind of laughed and said, easy, it's, the sons don't pay the taxes in the country, it's the foreigners that pay the taxes. Really, how's that worked out for us? I will point out to you, we had to amend the Constitution of the United States in 1916 or 1913 to put the 16th Amendment in to allow us to tax the people the way we do. That was not permitted by the Constitution, but that progressive tax that is now in, thats that's part of what happened. It took a constitutional amendment. Prior to that, the way we raised money was this imports and and tariffs and imposts and all this other stuff. It was other countries and other stuff paying so much of our taxes. See, we had a biblical view of economics that we don't even think about today. Here's a sermon. This is preached here in Virginia. And by the way, all the sermons I'm showing you, these are what are called revival sermons. They happen primarily in the First Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening, whatever. So this is the sinfulness and pernicious nature of gaming, a sermon preached before the General Assembly of Virginia at Williamsburg, March the 1st, 1752. Now, 95% of Christians today cannot name a single Bible verse that deals with gambling or lottery or gaming or anything else. Here's a sermon. It's called A Good Law, Sermon on the Liquor Law of Massachusetts, 1852. What happened was Massachusetts passed a law and it dealt with liquor and said, Okay, here's the law that was passed this week. Here's the topic. Here's what the Bible says about that topic. Okay, that's a good law. And that's why it's called a good law, because it lined up with what the Scripture says on that topic. Here's one on the injustice and policy of the slave trade, also preached in Virginia, 1791. Slavery of the Africans. It was the church that led the anti-slavery movements, the church that led the movement for equality to fulfill the concept that all men are created equal. That's one of the sermons preached. Here's a sermon that says, Marriage, scripturally considered. A sermon, this is 1837 in New Hampshire. Again, the legislature passed a law. We said, okay, they passed a law on marriage. Here's what the Bible says on marriage. Okay, that law works. That's that's a good law. It lines up with what the Bible said. Here's a sermon on the Fugitive Slave Bill. The Fugitive Slave Law was passed by Congress in 1850. Of the millions of laws passed by Congress, this is hands down one of the three worst federal laws ever passed, hands down. You notice the sermon is 1851. I've got a stack of sermons from 1851 on the Fugitive Slave Law. And across the United States, pastors said, People, here's the new federal law that was just passed. Here's what God says. Here's what the federal law says. Listen, are you hearing? This is what they'd say. Pay attention. If you obey the federal law, you're disobeying God's law. If you're going to obey God's law, you have to disobey this law. They called for massive civil disobedience across the United States over this law. This is what led to the official establishment of the Underground Railroad. It's very much like Acts 4 where the, the apostles were told, you can't do this, and they said, well, we've got to choose to obey God or man. Mm, we think we'll go with God, not man. So that's a, a, the same a sermon on civil disobedience. Don't think I've heard that in my lifetime to speak of. So social policy we deal with, we dealt with. This is the cry of Sodom inquired into. This is an LGBTQ sermon. They were talking about homosexuality. Uh, The Bible has a lot to say about that, but we're all pretty silent on that today, and I don't say that lightly because I see that in polling. We do a lot of national polling, and right now 77% of Christians self-censor on this issue for fear of being attacked if they touch that issue. If I say anything about it, I'm gonna somebody's going to get really mad at me or I'm going to get deplatformed. I'm going to be in Facebook jail or whatever. So we've gone silent on an issue the Bible is not silent on. Right. But yeah. even back in that day, it was a whole lot harder to talk about it than it is today. And even we did it then. This is a sermon on election. So election, government, voting. We covered all of this stuff. And see, this is what John Adams was talking about when he said the pulpits of thunder. It addressed biblical rele- relevancy in a very real way. Now, when you look at numbers in America today, if you'll notice back in the year 2000, we had 85% of America claimed to be Christian in 2000. They self-identified as Christian. Today, or actually two years ago in 2020, it was down to 65%. We have dropped from 85% to 65% in 20 years. 20 points in 20 years. That's a fast drop. And it's interesting when polling those people and why did you leave church? Why did you quit going to church? Two out of three said because they don't get anything relevant there. I get nothing that helps me with what I need in the week and during the week. This is what the church did in the beginning. This is the, the, the church that built America from, from the beginning. So this is what we've got to get back to. And this is why we kind of say, you know, we, got, we need a revival now. We, we've gotta, we're praying for revival, and that's a good prayer, but I think we've got a major problem. I don't think it's going to happen the way we think because we have an obsession with the national focus. Let me explain this. You get your news from somewhere, and generally it's national news. If you're on the right, I don't know, you're going to listen to Fox or Epic Times or The Blaze or you're going to listen to Victory News or Newsmax or whatever it is. If you're on the left, it's going to be CNN or MSNBC. Great. Whatever news you listen to, you're going to hear a lot about what's going on. For example, at at Congress, you're going to hear a lot about the Supreme Court, a lot about the, the White House. You hear a lot of that. It's all national stuff, and there's very little you can do about it. And by the way... If I were to ask you, name the president of the United States, you probably could. If I said, name the president of the school board, you probably can't. If I said, name three members of the federal Congress, probably can If I said, name three city council members, probably can't. See, we know a whole lot more about what goes on out there, things that we can't change than the things we can change that are all around us. And so our focus has become on the outside rather than on the inside. And I I, I say we can't change that from experience. Uh, I'm going to go back to December of 2015. December of 2015 is when ISIS moved into Iraq. And they started to set up the caliphate there. And at that point in time, they just started slaughtering Christians by the hundreds of thousands. We went from 2.5 million Christians in the Middle East down to 200,000. And it was headed down. And we believed that for the first time since Jesus walked in the Middle East, we might be at a point where we didn't have any Christians in the Middle East. At that point in time, a good friend of mine, Glenn Beck, started something called the Nazarene Fund. And Glenn and I still run that today. And so at that point in time, we wanted to rescue persecuted Christians. We reached out. And the guy we got to operate that was the guy who was a... He was the chief intelligence officer for Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. He was the chief intelligence officer for Secretary of Defense Gates. He was on the National Security Council under Trump. He he is the best intelligence asset out there. So we got him. He ran the stuff, and we started saving hundreds of thousands out of Iraq and out of the Middle East. Uh, we, We took tens of thousands, sent them to Australia and Brazil and Slovakia and Canada. We couldn't send them to the United States. The United States wouldn't take persecuted Christians, but we could send them elsewhere. And then the caliphate got whipped in 2017 and they go away. And so it's been fairly stable. And then we announced that we're going to pull out of Afghanistan by the end of August. Remember last year we made that announcement we're out of Afghanistan in August. And so as we're pulling out, 20 different terrorist groups move into Afghanistan. And by the first week of August, as we're trying to pull out, we've left Bagram. Now we're at the airport. That's where you saw the pictures of people throwing their babies over the razor wire. I'll do anything to get these these kids to grow up in America. And so one week into that, we got a call from military command, JSOC, and they said, would you guys take over the civilian evacuations out of Afghanistan? We said, sure. Sure happy to. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we love doing. So we did, and we were able to get thousands out, thousands of persecuted Christians. We we got so many of the allies who had fought with us over there, the the Afghan allies. We got 1,200 Americans. We got all this stuff going. And it's interesting, having to face 20 different terrorist groups over there, our biggest problem we had was the State Department, more than the terrorist groups. We had planes in the we had planes in the air, in the air going to Macedonia. A Christian nation. State Department called ahead and said turn that plane back. Wait a minute. We've been asked to do this. We had planes going to Albania and the State Department called ahead and to turn those planes back. Th- this is crazy stuff going on. So I started calling a bunch of U.S. senators and a bunch of U.S. congressmen. I knew said guys, we got to have help. We need it now. We're getting our planes turned back. This is resulting in deaths on the ground after these people land because Taliban's figuring out they were Christians and they're killing. This is not good stuff. And so they got a hold of Blinken, and Blinken got a hold of the State Department, and State Department refused to do it. Even though Blinken told them to do it, State Department wouldn't do it. Now, significantly, it's like the Supreme Court, it's like the White House. I've got connections all those levels, and probably my connections are better than a lot of people have, and I couldn't get anything done. So like everybody else, I get frustrated, and I get angry, and I feel paralyzed because I can't get anything done. And that's the problem, looking at the wrong level. We've got to look at the local level to make the changes. It's not going to be up there that we make it. But see, the problem is we get our news up there, and so we're aware of that. We've got to get aware of what's going on around us. Let me take you to the American War for Independence. The first four battles in the American War for Independence, top right around, top right is the Battle of Lexington, top left, Battle of Concord, lower left is the road to Boston, lower right is Bunker Hill. It's interesting that the first four battles in the American War for Independence... We were seriously outnumbered in all of them. And nobody called George and said, George, you're the National Commander-in-Chief. We need help and we need it now. Get us help here. We're outnumbered. Nobody did that. How come? Because they all said, George, you got serious stuff to do. It's our community. We'll take care of this. We can handle this because this is our area. And so it's significant to see what happened. For example, if you take the Battle of Lexington... The British came to town April the 19th, 1775. They're on their way to Concord, but the people in Lexington say, no, 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 you're not going to do this. And so they went out. We're told in our textbooks that when the 700 British came to town, 70 courageous Americans went out there to confront them and not let them pass. Not quite right. When the 700 British came to town, Reverend Jonas Clark took his church out there, and there were 70 guys in the church. Now, he got them out there, and when he got them out there and lined up, Deacon John Parker reminded them what Pastor Clark had been telling them. You see, this is the Minuteman statue that you'll see if you go to Lexington. And Pastor Clark, going back to 1770, the British started killing our people. Five years before before this incident, the British had been shooting us down, and we haven't declared war and we're trying to work things out. And Pastor Clark said, "You know, there may come a time when we get involved in war." He said, "If we do get involved in war, what does the Bible teach about war?" He said, number one, you can't have an offensive war. God will not bless an offensive war. You can't start nothing. But if they start something, God will bless a defensive war. You're allowed to defend yourself. Exodus 22, twice in, in, in uh, the book of Nehemiah over in, in Luke, all these passages on self-defense, you can do that, but you can't start nothing. So when the church goes out there and Deacon Parker goes out there and he reminds them, this is the famous quote you'll find at the bottom of the statue, he says, "Stand your ground." This is what Pastor Clark's been telling them. Stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. You can't start nothing. He said, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. We're going to draw a line. You ain't doing this in our community. That's just this way it is. And so the problem was we lost the battle that morning. And we would have lost if we'd had SEAL Team 6 on our side. It would have made a bit of difference. Because everybody had a single shot musket back then. So when you've got 700 single-shot muskets pointed at 70 single-shot muskets, and when they get the first shot, kind of lopsided. And it was. That's where 18 Americans hit the ground that morning. No British hit the ground, 18 Americans hit the ground. From there, the British go on to their objective, and that was Concord. When they got to Concord again, our history books say between three and 400 courageous Americans went out there to confront the British again, not right. What happened was the church of the Reverend William Emerson went out to confront the British, and there were between three and 400 guys in the church. So the church is out there, and they said, you're not doing this. We're just not letting you come across the bridge. You're not coming to town. And by the way, we heard you open fire on our brethren. Game on. And that's where the first British hit the ground that morning, because now we, have, we can engage in the right of self-defense. We didn't start anything. You did. And if you're going to start it, we, we're going to participate. And so at that point in time, the British commander now having lost some soldiers, he says, this is not going the right direction. I just faced 70 Americans. Now I face three to 400. We've only got 700. If this keeps growing, we're going to be in serious problem. We've got to get back to Boston. And so they did a quick forced march back to Boston, about 19 miles going back to Boston or Charlestown as it was. And he was right. He got outnumbered really quickly. On the trip back, there were some 4,500 Americans lining the roads on both sides shooting at them as they went back. So they were heavily outnumbered. Where'd they come from? Reverend Benjamin Boss brought his church. Reverend Payson Phillips brought his church. See, it was the church saying, you're not gonna do this in our community. Now, I'm not advocating physical violence. I'm just telling you the mentality that was back there. The mentality is, this is our community and you're not gonna do this. Same thing when you get to Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, Battle of Bunker Hill... You had Reverend Joseph Willard who said, I've got two companies here in the church. Let's go across town and get with all the other churches. We'll defend Boston, which is what the Battle of Bunker Hill was. So this was common throughout that period of time that, that we had this, this focus on we're going to fix this stuff locally. So the way we ended up winning the, the American Revolution was we won so many local battles it turned into a national victory. There were more than 80 battles, 80 significant battles in the American Revolution. Nearly all of them were local George was involved in a few, like Yorktown and Brandywine and Monmouth, and good for him. We needed him there, but most of the battles were fought and won at the local level. And even when George was there, like at Yorktown, so much of the local people came out to support him and provide troops for what he had. Same with Brandywine and Monmouth. So it's getting that local focus back that really is the story of what happened in the American War for Independence. But I mentioned we're praying for revival, and we do want a national revival, no question about it. But revivals are the same way. They occur locally. Now, wait a minute. Time out. If revivals occur locally, then what do you do with the Great Awakenings? First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening. First Great Awakening has got great guys like George Whitfield. George Whitfield, amazing guy. He preached 34 years. He preached 18,000 sermons in America. He preached 14,000 sermons in Europe. So, in 34 years, he preached 32,000 sermons, which averages three a day. And on top of that, 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. Now that's message penetration. Facebook, Twitter, nobody is close to 80% of the nation. There ain't With big tech, you ain't even close to that. So 80%, how did that happen? Because George Whitfield was the chaplain in the colony of Georgia. He got on his horse in Georgia and he rode to Massachusetts. Except it was actually Maine because northern Massachusetts hadn't broken off to be the state of Maine yet. So what we call Maine was actually northern Massachusetts. He got in Georgia, rode his horse to Maine and preached every town he went through along the way. He just preached a revival every town. Then when he got to Maine he turned around and rode back to Georgia but he took a different route. And he preached in all the towns as he went back through. Then when he got to Georgia he turned around and went back to Maine, a different route, preaching in different towns. He did seven trips back and forth on horseback from Georgia to Maine, preaching different towns. The reason 80% of Americans physically heard him preach a sermon is he was in 80% of the towns in America. Yeah. I mean, he stopped every... See, it was a bunch of local revivals that broke out, and the ministers in town could keep it going for years, which is what happened in areas that, that they could... You know, Samuel Davies here in Virginia, after Whitfield came here in the 40s, he kept it going for another 15 years, and that's where Patrick Henry gets trained, at the feet of the Reverend Samuel Davies, and Patrick Henry acknowledges it was Samuel Davies that trained him. That's where he learned to be a good orator, and that's where he learned what was right and wrong. So this revival went for a long time because it was all local in its, in its orientation. We think it's a national revival, but again, it was local revival. So the focus is is locally, and all this stuff, the obsession with the national focus has to be replaced with local stuff, and that includes when it comes to something like politics and voting. You see, when it comes to voting in America, the Constitution has two requirements for any voter. Number one, you have to be a legal citizen, and number two, you have to be 18 years old. If you're 18 years old and a legal citizen, 100% of those people can vote. Now, we do have a piece of paper we want you to fill out before you vote, voter registration, because we want to know who you are so that you don't vote seven times or somebody doesn't vote seven times for you. Well, we want voter integrity. So if you're 18 years old and a legal citizen, you can vote, just fill out a piece of paper. At this point, only 65.3% of Americans have filled out that piece of paper. We have more than 100 million adults that have decided they don't want any voice in what goes on in the political realm. They don't care what goes on in the political realm. That's what Chad was talking about earlier. That's what Byron was talking about earlier got just in our churches, 312 churches here in Virginia, 77,000 people who had never voted before, but who had the right values, just hadn't done anything. And by the way, Matt point out, Yonkin's margin of victory was 66,000. Right. So, the fact that 77,000 came out of 312 churches, and there's tens of thousands of churches in Virginia, 77,000 came out of 312, I think that's the margin of victory right there. I think that's the difference, but that's not all. There's going to be more coming. So, registered vote. There's two types of elections in America. You have a presidential election. This is where you get the biggest voter turnout. Over the last 11 presidential elections, the average voter turnout is 54%, but that's 54% of registered voters. That's 54% of 65.3%, which means 36% of adults vote in a presidential election, and it takes half that to win. Then you get to the elections like we have this year. This is called an off-year election. In the last 21 off-year elections, the average voter turnout is 38 percent, but that's 38 percent of registered, which is, means 38 percent is 65 percent, which means when we're choosing our U.S. senators and U.S. congressmen, our governors, our legislators, 26 percent of Americans participate in choosing our leaders at the state level and it only takes half of that to win. So what you're looking at is over the last 11 presidential elections, one out of five Americans chooses the president of the United States, and one out of eight Americans chooses governors and senators and congressmen, et cetera. Then when you go to the local level, it's 6% voter turnout. But that's 6% of registered voters, which is 6% of 65%, which 4% of adults vote in local elections. It takes half of that to win 2%. Let me take you to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the second largest city in the nation, the population of the city of Los Angeles is larger than the population of 23 individual states. So if you're Eric Garcetti, mayor of LA, it's like being a governor in 23 states. Eric Garcetti brags about the fact that he was elected with 2.9% of the vote in LA. And then if you go to Houston, the nation's fourth largest city. In Houston, the population of Houston is larger than it is in 20 different states. Anise Parker was elected mayor there with 4.9% of the registered voters which is 3.3% of adults who actually voted in that election. When she got elected, she said she was the first openly lesbian mayor of Houston. She said, you know, you guys that say marriage is between a man and a woman, that's a hate crime. You're attacking me personally. You're picking me out and singling me. No, 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 no. Uh, Anise, we were saying this before you were ever born. This goes back to Genesis 1, 2, 3. This is what we believed in the Western world. No, no, no. It's a hate crime on me. So she ends up passing Houston what's called HERO, which is Houston Equal Rights Ordinance. The top 200 cities in the United States have passed... EROs, Equal Rights Ordinances, or ERAs, Equal Rights Amendments, or HROs, Human Rights Ordinances, or HRAs, Human Rights Amendments, it doesn't matter, there's 200, and they do that, and it's real, real clear, I mean, she said, if you say that marriage between a man and a woman, it is now a crime. They did this in San Antonio. In San Antonio, they said, if you say marriage between a man and a woman, it's a class C misdemeanor. You'll get a $500 fine for each time you do it. And on top of that, if we can ever find documented that you have said marriage between a man and a woman on a tape or a video or on your Facebook post or anything else, if we can find that on social media, at that point in time, you can never run for office in San Antonio. And you can never do business with the city. You can't be a paving contractor. You can't be a landscaper. That was the the law they passed in San Antonio. So when this happened in Houston, people said, whoa, we elected you to fix the bridges and the highways and stop the crime. So 4,500 churches got 4,500 churches together and said, "Let's, let's do this on a referendum. Let's put this on the city ballot and let the people vote on it. So we got it on the city ballot and the day before the election, Houston Chronicle ran a poll and said, we've announced the results of the poll. The city is firmly behind Mayor Parker. She's going to win this by landslide. Polling shows a 60-40 uh, margin that she'll win it by. We're going to lose by big big margin. Next day was election day and we had 14% turnout and we whipped her by 22 points. Yeah. It was 61-39. to 39. It was a landslide. <laughs> now, May I point out, 14% is pathetic. Yeah, Yeah, but it's five times bigger than 3%, which is what it had been. And just by getting Christians up to that level, it was disproportionate victory. It turned into a landslide. You see, we're barely winning things with Christians being slightly involved right now. If we ever get them engaged like 4,500 churches there, then it turns into a landslide. It's not even a fight anymore. Let me take you to Fort Worth, Texas. It's the nation's 13th largest city. Six and a half years ago, the Fort Worth, Texas school board said, you know, we've considered it and we think we're just going to let kids choose whatever gender they want. And because of that, kids can choose any bathroom they want. They can choose any locker room they want. They can choose any shower they want. We're just not going to do gender stuff anymore. When that happened, at that point in time, Arne Duncan, who was the Secretary of Education for President Trump, said, why didn't I think of that? Brilliant. And so, he came out with a new thing. He said, out of the Department of Education, any school that receives federal tax dollars, which is 97% of the schools, you're not going to do gender stuff anymore. Kids choose anything they want. You're just not going to do gender stuff. Now, let me tell you, this disturbs me. I am a cowboy from Texas. You got the ranch, everything that goes with it, grown-up ranching, all the stuff that you do with ranching. And problem with me is that I live right outside Fort Worth. If you don't know the nickname of Fort Worth, it is known as Cowtown USA. That's what it's known. Twice a day on Main Street, we have cattle drives up and down the street. We drive these Longhorn up and down Main Street twice a day. We're Cowtown USA. Now, you may not be a cowboy, cowgirl. That may not be who you are. doesn't matter. I can take any of you and put you behind that herd, and you can tell me which are the bulls and which are the cows and which are the steers. You don't have to be a cowboy to know that. It's, it's a real... And we've never seen a bull become a cow, and we've never seen a cow become a bull. And out of Cowtown, USA, you come up with this silly policy? So i look, nation's 13th largest city, 918,000 in Fort Worth. And i looked at the president's school board, who's the guy who introduced this policy that went all over the nation, and he was elected with less than 1,200 votes, matter of fact, he's 1,182 votes. And so I looked in his district where he ran and instantly found one large evangelical church with more than 3,000 Bible-believing adults. That one church could have kept him from being on the school board, which would have saved the whole nation from six and a half years of gender nonsense. See, local stuff. It's it's local stuff. Two more examples. If I take you to Bentonville, Arkansas, Bentonville is the hometown of, of Walmart. Walmart, there's 40,000 people in Bentonville and there was a Christian lady there who said, mm-hmm, you're not doing this in our school. And so she ran for school board and she got elected. In that town of 40,000 people, there were 35 votes cast for school board and she won the majority of the 35 votes. If I take you to Riceville, Iowa, it's even better. A farmer in Riceville, Iowa, northern Iowa said, you're not doing this in our school, that's for sure. So he ran for school board, he got his name on the ballot, and it turned out that on election day he got busy on the farm, he didn't vote, and don't think he lost by one vote, because that's not what happened. What happened was not a single person voted in the school board election. Had he voted for himself, he would be on the school board. Just had he voted for himself. See, this is local. This is where you can have the impact, but we know so little about what goes on in our state, what little goes on in, in our communities and our regions. So that's where things have to change, this local focus. And by the way, Dr. Benjamin Rush, I mentioned him earlier. John Adams said he's one of the three most notable guys, and just really strong. He is also known as the father of public schools under the Constitution, because in 1790, he wrote this piece on the mode of education proper republic. He said, you know, up to now, we've been... 13 different nations, or yeah, we've been 13 different nations, but now we're one nation with 13 states. It used to be that we were all totally independent, do whatever we wanted, but now we're part of a nation. So what do we need to be teaching in our public schools if we're going to remain a nation? He said the purpose of public schools is threefold. He said the number one purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve God. He said the number two purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their country And the number three purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their family. Now, if you look at that, most Christians I know think that is out of order. They think, no, it should be God and then family and then country because family is more important. And he said, no, you're wrong. It is God and then country and then family. Why Why that? Because he pointed out that if you ever lose control of your country, it would become the great enemy to your family. One of the best ways to protect your family is to make sure you have people in office who want to attack your family. And what we've seen over recent years, starting a year and a half ago, two years ago in Loudoun County and Fairfax and all the stuff that got people's attention on school boards. People are now, you're doing what in school? What do you got in the libraries? Gender transition closets? What are you counseling my kids? And so people are now finding out what's going on. This, the, the country has become the great enemy of the family. And now they're wanting to get involved, which is a great deal. I mean, this is what it's going to take to turn things around. So the local focus is significant. You guys in Virginia had this. You heard about the 312 churches. Let me give you two more parts about that. Those 312 churches, you know, First Timothy says that no one can be crowned unless they run according to the rules, which means you need to know what rules are. And so 1,300 people out of those 312 churches were trained, 300 as state-certified, state-trained election officials, and thousands as poll watchers. And they said, we're going to look for corruption. Well, they found it. 5.2% of the ballots cast they challenged as being corrupt. One guy had registered to vote in 27 different places. One vacant lot had 17 votes come off the vacant lot. Nobody even lives there. I mean, just item after item. So 5.2% challenges Illegal, that's enough to make a difference in the election, 5.2%. And then on top of that, it said, hey, you know, up in northern Virginia, they're pretty crazy up there. I mean, all those guys that, that work up there, they kind of lost their brain. So you guys in the country that still have a brain, you're going to have to turn out higher than you normally do. What happened in the rural areas of Virginia, instead of, instead of having a 35% turnout, it was a 64% turnout. You put that many more votes up there, that too makes a difference. So it's like Houston. If you just elevate the vote level, even if it's low, you elevate it. It's a huge margin of victory, and so that's what you see happening. Colorado. I was involved with a bunch of churches in Colorado, and those those churches in Colorado, uh, they got involved in school boards, and they took scores of school boards in Colorado. Didn't spend any money at all. They just got people to be aware of who the, the right people are, who the wrong. people Here's what they believe. We're not telling you who to vote for. Here's a voter guide. But the school board members. Here's what they believe. And man, did Colorado flip in an amazing direction. And then let me just show you some headlines across the country you might not have seen. Uh, This is an interesting to me, interesting one to me. It says, Canada's opposing critical race theory. COVID-19 mandates When Minnesota school board rate. Minnesota? They're not just blue, they're communist. I mean, they're crazy up there. And conservatives got the school board in Minnesota. I love this one out of New Jersey. 19-year-old who saw his senior year disrupted by COVID shutdowns unseats the incumbent in a school board race. So the guy who said, uh, this kid said, you were in my senior year. I-, I couldn't even go to school. I'm running against you. He ran against the incumbent. He won by 17 points in New Jersey, this 19-year-old kid. And I will say it is nice to finally have some adults on the school board in New Jersey. So <laughs> then if I take you here, slate of conservative candidates declared victory in hotly contested. D- Denver? That's super liberal. Yeah, conservatives took the school board. That's part of that Colorado thing I was telling you about. And then here, three or four conservative challengers win seats on Wichita School Board. Wichita is the second most liberal city in Kansas. You got Kansas City and then Wichita. Conservatives take the liberal city of Wichita School Board. Then down at the bottom, Treasure Valley, that's Boise. That's the most liberal city by far in Idaho. Conservatives took the Boise School Board. Conservatives win big in school board elections. Policy changes could follow. Uh, school board races in major Colorado Springs area districts are sweeping wins. For example, won every single school board in Colorado Springs. Every one of them, clean sweep of every school board. Just like this last week in Texas, we made a clean sweep of the DFW area. We just completely turned over school boards in a completely different direction. See, it's not that hard because the voter turnout is so low. It's just that people didn't know what the races were, who's running, or anything else. You get them that information, it makes a huge difference. One more, conservative Houston area school board candidates win by campaign. Houston? That's 2.3 million people in Houston. Yep, and we won the school board races with somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 votes in a city of 2.3 million. See, we got churches involved, and we got all these candidates. So there's good things happening all across the nation. I'll close with Charles Fenton. Charles Finney. Charles Finney was part of the Second Great Awakening. As a matter of fact, it's estimated that just in the year 1857 to 1858, he led more than 100,000 people to Christ in that one year. Charles Finney, in 1835, wrote a book on how to have revivals. He believed that revival was a science, that you could learn from the Bible how to have revivals. It wasn't just praying and fasting for revivals, and it's based on the if-then verses of the Bible. You know what the if-then verses are? Second Chronicles 7:14. If my people will do this then I'll do this. Now, you don't have to pray for God to do this. If you'll just do what He told you to over here, He'll do what He promised He would over here. Now, some of that involves praying because He said, if my people will humble themselves and pray and do all this other stuff, then I'm going to hear from heaven and heal their land. So, it involves some praying, but you just don't pray for revival. There's certain things you got to do. So, He went through the if-then verses of the Bible. If you do this, then God will do this. He said, you can have revival whenever you want if you'll do the stuff He told you to do. So, he listed that out. Lecture number 15 in his revival series was very interesting. This is what he said. He said, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. Politics are part of a religion in a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. He said, God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, why would this be? How does God bless a nation? Easy. Easy. Proverbs fourteen thirty four righteousness exalts a nation, sins are reproached any people. If you want God to bless America, give him righteousness, and he will. You know, we, we sing God bless America all the time. My gosh, give him something to work with. I mean, you're going to sing God bless America and give him policies he can't bless? How does that work? You have to give him policies he can bless. How do you get policies he can bless? Real easy, Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, and the wicked rule, the people groan. You're not going to get wicked people with wrong thinking to give you policies that God can bless. It's going to take God thinking people who have a biblical foundation of some type who understand the things he can bless to make that in policies so that he can bless them so that even the wicked, even the unchurched, even the non-Christians get blessed in America because God's blessing the nation. And it's that kind of blessing that comes down. I thought it was interesting that he, le- he labeled the title of this lecture Revival Lecture Number 15. He called it Hindrances to Revival. He said if you want to keep a revival from coming than just stay out of politics because that will be what we've seen for the last several years. We've become so pagan in so many areas. We've seen Christianity going to the floor. It's just so many areas. So there's a chance to turn it around and we can do that. And you guys have made a good start here in Virginia and I get to talk about you guys all over the nation and it's really good for everybody else to see what can be done. Because it doesn't, take, it doesn't take the majority to do it. It just takes some people getting dedicated and getting active. And as I said, even in Houston, if you just up it a little bit, you know, from 3% to 14%, it turns into a landslide. So it does make a difference when we get people involved. Now, if this kind of history is new to you, I'd send you to the table on the side over at the American Story. We've got a lot of this stuff in there. But God bless you guys. Thanks for letting me share.